0: Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run companies with a special focus on micro-private equity and permanent capital. You can learn more at thinklikeowners.com. My guest today is Kevin Graham, an Australian native living in Thailand running a web hosting company called Site Arrow, which he uses as his acquisition vehicle to buy other web hosting companies. The topic of software and microprivate equity has come up more and more often and has been a recent focus of mine to learn more about, and Kevin was very helpful to that regard. While a great deal of the technical side of our discussion went over my head, his thinking around using permanent capital to perform a roll-up of sorts of small web hosting companies was fascinating beyond web host acquisitions, we also briefly discussed digital nomads and the life of living abroad. I hope you find our discussion as interesting as I did, and if you or someone you know is in the business of acquiring small software companies, I'd love to chat as I want to continue learning about this space. Please enjoy the episode. Mike Boyd was the first one to introduce me to micro PE and permanent capital in software, and during one of our conversations, we talked about digital nomads, and you, you, you've said you don't like that term. Um, who are digital nomads, and then why do you not like the term digital nomads, quote unquote?
1: So a digital nomad is really just anyone who is nomadic or has the ability to move around as they please while still doing work. And the work component the digital component, whether it's like uh, people that are doing writing gigs or working for a company in a remote job or people that actually run their own companies remotely. Now, the reason that I don't super like the term digital nomad is there's such a wide variety of people in that space. So as I said, there's the writers, there's the people doing, um, you know, remote gigs and that sort of stuff. Um, and then there's people like me who run location-independent businesses. Um, and so I like to consider myself more of a location-independent business owner than a digital nomad. I mean, the other part as well is that for a lot of the time, I'd am much prefer to have a home base. So I'm recording this with you right now from my home base here in Chiang Mai in Thailand. I've got like everything set up to actually be able to do podcasts and do work and everything. When I'm on the road, so I just did a month in Australia and a month in Austin. While I was on the road, it was a lot more difficult to do that because you just, you know, mostly just traveling with your laptop and it's laptops and uh, working in coffee shops aren't super convenient for actually doing deep work. I grew up in Adelaide, which is a city of about a million people in the center and down the bottom. Um, Adelaide's sort of known for its uh, wine growing, uh, wine growing, yeah. For its wine growing region um so like a lot of the good australian wines like penfolds and jacobs creek are all pretty much on my doorstep about an hour away from home um but yeah i've been abroad for five years now um i moved to chiang mai in january 2014 and i hang around with a, a lot of people from all around the globe over here
0: and i'm kind of curious do you enjoy being a like being abroad and working abroad it seems like some people really enjoy it and there's a type of person that loves the travel and the new locations but then there are some who miss the routine and miss home and view the whole experience as really beneficial of course but they they want somewhere to be you know to be called home and that's not necessarily abroad so along that spectrum where do you think you fall
1: I definitely need a home base and routines. So um, as I said, like the two months on the road were kind of difficult. Like there was no gym, there was no, you know, great spot to get work done. Um, equally though, I sort of find over here a lot easier for lifestyle stuff. So like, um, as I mentioned to you probably before we hit recording, like I've got a maid who is like coming this morning she comes like twice a week and it cost me less than $10 for her to be here for like half a day cleaning the house, running basic errands and those sort of things. Um, food's super cheap and also you can get connected with a lot of more people that are doing interesting things out here than you might be able to back home. What sorts of interesting things are you running across? So, it's I guess it's more like it's a lot easier to connect with people running other businesses so one of my good friends runs a laundry pickup and delivery service here in chiang mai um which like if i was back in adelaide i probably wouldn't be able to connect with those sort of people running you know businesses like that as easy as i can over here there's a lot more like uh i guess people wanting to get out there and meet people and connect with new people um then you might get in like a a city in like america or australia or wherever else
0: what led you to running site arrow and then what sorts of or can you talk about the permanent capital side of site arrow where you're looking to buy other similar companies
1: yeah so um site arrow was initially formed out of um, an SEO hosting brand that I launched in December, 2015. Now, what led me to get into that was uh, what I initially moved to Chiang Mai to do, which was affiliate marketing. Um, And particularly like affiliate marketing with product review websites that get most of their traffic from uh, organic search. So from Google. Um, Now, what we were doing in order to get that traffic uh, one, of, one of the biggest ranking signals in Google's algorithm is backlinks. Backlinks are, can be quite difficult difficult to get for these sort of product review websites. So we basically built our own network of sites that were link, linking to our product review websites to generate the authority they needed to rank on the first page. Now, part of doing that is those sites need to be on a bunch of different servers and have unique IP addresses. I uh, apologise if I am getting slightly too technical for your audience right now, um, but managing that was a nightmare. We had Excel sheets like out like out the wazoo, just like you know, with all the different accounts and the login details and all of that, and it was annoying and a nuisance. So, basically, I built uh, bog by hosting our, our first uh, web hosting product as sort of a way to simplify that and put it all into one dashboard and then only have to deal with like one monthly bill rather than like dealing with hundreds of providers and losing some of them all the time. Um, so that's what, where I started. Um, we then launched a, a second, uh, SEO hosting product in, uh, late 2016. And then, uh, throughout 2018, uh, we went on an acquisition spree of like small retail hosting companies um, and poured almost 300K into uh, acquiring a a bunch of them and like basically rolling them up into the same back end for support and uh, servers, but keeping um, a lot of the retail brands as they were on the uh, front end. So to the customers, it still looked the same.
0: Gotcha. So you're taking a lot of the... More back office tasks and integrating them into Site Arrow, but keeping the brand as separate.
1: Yeah, that's right. And with web hosting, that's uh, super easy to do because the back end servers can always look very uh, white labeled and generic, which is what we use across our portfolio of brands. And then the the front end customer support, you know, all will all respond with whatever brand the customers are uh, always known. But you know, it's the same integrated team on the back end, um, and achieving that sort of um, operational efficiency across a number of brands is probably one of the best ways to uh, effectively manage a, a group of web hosting uh, customers. It
0: sounds like a case of where the you know the term synergy is used appropriately.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's. Um, you know there's there's definitely a lot of synergies between each of those individual brands that when we roll them up um things get even better at scale for us in terms of operational efficiency compared to where the previous owners had them of like needing to have a certain base level of like support and servers and everything else um that you know might not need to uh necessarily be replicated across 10 brands because you can use that same uh, group of back-end servers to service multiple brands
0: when you're looking for these little brands to buy how big are they generally and then what kinds of multiples are you paying on them
1: yeah um so a lot of the deals we've done um have been somewhere between 5k and 55 60k um All of them are based on the industry standard, which is one year's uh, revenue in that sort of price range. Um, So basically, if we look at the trailing 12 months rev and then say, okay, last 12 months you did this. If it's flat, then obviously we sort of just run with that as a number. If we're seeing it um, improving or declining, we sort of adjust accordingly accordingly. based on like a slightly longer, like more like 18 to 24 month trend. Um, and then just make a, an offer based on that. Um, the idea being that web hosts um, can put somewhere between 33% and 50% out the bottom line. So the overall actual multiple you're buying it for is somewhere in the 2X to 3X range.
0: Is there any particular reason that the focus is on, the multiple is focused on the revenue and not the income
1: yeah, I, my guess is um, basically because of a lot of what I mentioned before where for hosts of that size, um, generally you're looking at acquiring it and uh, integrating it into existing infrastructure that you have. So the more interesting and more relevant component is how much revenue they have versus uh, what the profit is that they're throwing out um, mostly because you're looking at and saying, well, hey, we'll probably be able to put majority of these customers onto existing servers, so the revenue is more important than the actual uh, profit that they're throwing out the bottom. Now, obviously, you still look at that, and like on one of the deals we did over the last 12 months, um, his profit figures were extremely low, but he'd like over-provisioned the number of servers. So there were like some servers in there that we could kill off uh, straight away and also other efficiencies in terms of, again, you know, using our uh, one integrated backend for support and servers that he didn't have that we would have had. So how do you tend to find these companies? And
0: then are there other competing offers and buyers for these companies? Like, Who are the main people in that area?
1: Yeah. So um, in terms of finding the deals, there's a mix of uh, the deals that come up through like the industry forums. So web hosting talk and a few of those other industry forums. And then there's a group of brokers who all share the one list of uh, opportunities for sale um, in the web hosting space. And so I work with one of the uh, brokers in that group, but I think the overall group is around three or four different brokerage firms that all share that one uh, list of uh, opportunities for sale. In terms of the people that I'm competing with, um, there's a lot of other web hosts of similar sort of size and scale to us um, where they're in high six, low seven figure uh, annual rev. um, And they're also looking at that same thing of, hey, if we can pick up a, a small host that's doing, 50 to 100K per year and bolt that onto their existing business, then it's a great way for them or us to grow. So, like that low profit deal that I mentioned before, um, that one, uh, our broker said, I think we're competing against like three or four different uh, other small web hosts that were looking to acquire that company.
0: My experience with web hosting is limited to my interaction with you know, Squarespace and whatnot. So what sorts of things are important to evaluate when you're buying a web hosting company? What what metrics or what what values are really important?
1: Yeah, Um, the things that we're always looking for is obviously uh, how long the customers have been with that brand and how long that brand has been around. Um, There have been some that we passed on where the owners tried to fake the age of the brand. Um, So they'd basically bought, a domain that was registered in 2006, but only started serving customers in 2018. Um, but on their website, they were saying they'd been around since 2006, which, <laughs> you know, if you're lying about that, like, I can't really trust anything else you're saying. Um, so we sort of do a bit of a deep dive on the brand to look at the history, see where they have been getting customers from, and this type of customers that they're serving. So um another deal that we passed on a lot of the customers were only paying like one to two dollars a month which um yeah it's it's not really profitable at that point by the time you need to provide servers and support and everything else for those customers um so you know we need to look at some of those factors when we're doing these acquisitions um ideally what we're looking for is you know our customers that have been with the brand for several years and you know uh Brands that have obviously been around for a few years on on their own, and you know, genuinely have been around for a few years, um, and then you sort of look at like how much customers like or dislike those brands as well in terms of looking at forum reviews and all all the sort of background checking that you would do whether you were um, acquiring a restaurant or a, a laundromat or whatever sort of business you're looking to acquire. All of that sort of background research to get that feel for what the owner's like, what the customers are like, and make sure that you're in the the right market segment that you want to be uh, operating in.
0: And is there enough similarity between web hosting companies that you can build a, a checklist of sorts that you can implement after you buy the company of like improvements and that sort of thing? Or are they so different and owners are, you know, have different styles of operating and management that? You really have to go case by case.
1: I mean, there's sort of a group of like standard things that we do. Um, in terms of web hosts, like the vast majority all run a one billing platform, which is like the industry standard. It's called WHMCS. So now when we're doing deals, um, we're always looking to acquire hosts that already have WHMCS because then our support team know how to use that billing system we know how to dig through it to find the data that we want and we're not making any changes to customers in terms of their billing system either. Um, One of the first deals we did, uh, this company had been around since 2000, they had a completely custom billing system. Um, Now, when we came on board, we obviously want to swap that for WHMCS and we had a bit of pushback from those customers because they, you know, were getting a new billing system, a new interface to the uh, the tasks that they want to do. And there was you know, a bit of pushback around. Uh, I, I like the old thing. It was a lot easier to do things and or whatever. Um, you know, people are resistant to change. So we're now like always looking for hosts with WHMCS. In terms of the backend server software, again, there's like uh, cPanel, which is like the most commonly used uh, server software for standard shared web hosting um so like the sort of stuff you buy from Bluehost or HostGator or any of our brands all use a cPanel so there are a couple of small tiny competing platforms to that but again like we only want to buy cPanel hosts because it's very easy for us to then uh transfer those accounts from the the old server to any of our servers it's easy for our support team to use because you know they're used to using it from all of our other customers so there's all of those things which are um you know form part of our checklist when we're looking at opportunities to acquire and then after acquisition we can go through and you know as i said before potentially move customers to our servers uh in whmcs we'll go in and configure the support uh departments the way that we have them for all of our other brands we add our payment gateways in all of those sort of things that we sort of do after is sort of a, a standard process. But yeah, there's obviously there are other hosts that sit outside of that uh, group of software. Um, and, you know, in the past, we've done a couple of deals like that. But going forward, based on just the headaches we've had from doing those deals, they're not the sort of deals we'd be doing again in the future.
0: And is there some endpoint or end game that you're building to like do you want to eventually buy larger and larger web hosting companies or expand beyond into some other area of software or whatnot or are you just trying to build the biggest like web hosting investment machine you can find or you can build
1: yeah um if you'd asked me three to six months ago uh before we had uh one deal that we did in the game hosting space that went a bit bad. And, um, you know, before we sort of hit uh, the pause phase that we're in at the moment on acquisitions as we just try and uh, get everything working well and, you know, move forward from there. My goal was to basically grow from where we were at like five to 600k rev to 5 million rev across a five-year span, basically through going out, acquiring these hosts, using the the uh profit to then go out and acquire more and so on and so forth um one of the other things that that was based on was assuming that we'd be able to get uh 50 out the bottom of these hosts and it's turned out to be a lot more like 30 35 which then also changes that whole uh structure of being able to go to like five million five years um so at the moment i'm sort of in a pause phase trying to like tidy up a lot of the stuff and focus on like the current thing, which is uh, getting myself out of the business more. Um, And then in like another two, three months, we'll go back to looking at um, what's on the market and then, yeah, basically try and buy bigger and bigger hosts and roll them into our system. Um, In terms of like the the eventual goal, like, yeah, I I guess potentially there's the, the opportunity once you've done this roll up to then exit it to another player. Um, So there's a few larger either PE or private equity sort of groups and even a couple of public companies in this space that if we were big enough, we could potentially exit to. Um, But at the moment, the goal and first stage was just to actually build it to a a nice sized entity that would have those sort of opportunities available to
0: it. When you say you're taking yourself more out of the business, is that sort of the working in this, in the business versus on the business and more high level strategy or what sort of things are you are you doing now versus you know three to six months ago
1: yeah so um at the moment i'm like i'm trying to get myself out of the ops and system admin roles um so uh we'd hired a system admin he lasted 23 days and then had found a job with um another company that he'd been applying to for a long time and so he said hey i really want to go work for these guys the opportunity finally came up i'm leaving which was like gutting because we were just starting to get him up to speed so we're now hiring again another system admin to come in and take on a lot of the system admin duties from me um once we get to probably that next uh next size up um probably like somewhere in like 1.2 to 1.5 well, I'll be trying to bring in an ops manager to sit below me to actually handle uh, system admin plus uh, support and finance so that then, again, like I'm sort of further removed from the the day-to-day. Early this year, we brought on a customer support manager. So uh, that at least removes the customer support agents from being direct reports to me. And so basically just trying to add those levels in so that, I can yeah do that higher level working on the business stuff rather than needing to work in the business and do system admin or uh, managing ops and those sort of things
0: through you know various conversations the the question of different roles. Has come up a few times, and that the founders or managers of these micro PE permanent capital companies all have different roles and different styles, even though on paper they all look relatively similar. And so there's you know a marketing head, there's the operations, or you know something like a, a capital allocator. It sounds more like you're trying to leave the operator side and go towards the allocator. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Um. I guess not coming from. Uh, a space of uh, micro PE or permanent capital or any of those, I'm sort of very much still looking at this thing as like uh, one company that owns multiple brands. Um, But yeah, I guess where I sort of want to transition to is like just completely CEO where I'm in charge of setting strategy and direction, looking at uh, the deals that come across in terms of like... uh, would this uh, brand and company be a, a good fit for us? And then have uh, people actually go through and do the, uh, do the review, do some of the due diligence on it and um, also then be able to do the integration without me needing to be in there doing all those roles.
0: Have you run across other people doing similar roll-up strategies and are there different ways that people are going about that? and is there a lot of them in in thailand perhaps or other places around asia
1: yeah um in terms of uh location wise i'm not seeing so much of that um in thailand or asia um the majority of the the web hosting industry is sort of focused in either the us or uh europe obviously there's you know smaller brands and larger brands that exist in like africa asia etc australia but the the core of both of those of, of the industry sort of lives in either the U.S. or Europe. Um, in terms of other uh, entities out there doing this sort of roll-up stuff, um, on the private side, there's um, a New York-based group called Cloud Equity Group. Um, we've competed with them on a couple of deals. Uh, we've seen one of their ones, uh, one of their brands, come up for sale before. Um, and those guys are similar to us in that they've uh, at least been based from uh, owning and operating web hosting companies and then you know going out and doing the same thing we're doing of acquiring more uh, brands to slot into their uh, machine. Um, and then on the, the public side, you even have a, a couple of companies in the public space doing that. So the, the biggest one in that space would be Endurance, um, Endurance um, have basically entirely grown from being in the private market and then going public um, and entirely built their brands from acquisitions. So Endurance is a company that's behind Bluehost, HostGator, and a bunch of the other uh, you know uh, bigger names in web hosting that you see whenever you do a search. Um, and their model's based on basic acquisitions and then heavy spending on affiliates to acquire new customers. Um, But, yeah, if you go and read their financial reports, it's quite interesting when they say, hey, we've never made money and we have no idea whether we're actually going to make money in the future, Um, which is the complete opposite of of our model where, you know, we've been making money from day one, we're operating a profitable company and we intend to continue to be profitable for... um, you know, the foreseeable future.
0: And how do you think of the the use of leverage? If you bought these hosting companies and you expected a 50% margin, so you had leverage according to that, and then maybe this isn't the case, but maybe you did use leverage to buy a company and then you found it's, you know, really the number you said, which is 35. How did that affect your acquisition and how did it affect running the company afterwards
1: yeah um so everything we've done has been with uh, our own capital which has been raised from the profits of operating the the businesses so we haven't used leverage um i i know that there's like that risk benefit analysis of using leverage now obviously the upside is we could go out and scale and do things a lot faster The downside, of course, is uh, some of those deals that we've done, um, the returns haven't turned out to be as good as we'd hoped. Or uh, in one of the deals that the game server won, after acquiring it, there was such a steep drop-off of customers from what we assume were potentially inactive customers that were still paying, that the business went from profitable to unprofitable. um, And last Friday, we... Uh, Announced we were closing off that brand because we wanted to basically stem the losses and uh, you know move forward with the stuff that was profitable and stop wasting time focusing on that. Um, so if we'd leveraged to buy that, then that would have been a lot more of uh, a lot more pain than just the probably hundred k all in in terms of acquisition and losses that we'd made since acquiring that company. Um, so. You know, I think if your strategies are really dialed and you've got enough deals under your belt that you can really closely pat match and see those things, then, you know, leverage could be a really good thing that would help you go out and acquire a lot faster. Um, For us, because we're still getting started in this space, like just using our own capital is the the safest way for us to, to get started in this space. And also, you know, like it, it stings to lose your own money, but it would sting so much more to then still be on the hook for a bunch of debt as well.
0: Yeah, I can imagine that it would be really tricky. You mentioned that that company had to close. Is that Was that something that you felt could have foreseen and you could have anticipated it? Or was it something that really all the preparation you had done up to that point really wasn't going to give you the answer until you bought the company and you were on the hook for it?
1: Based on what I knew when I acquired, everything looked great. Based on the lessons I've learned from doing that deal, there's a lot more things uh, that we've added to our DD process, um, including also or like yeah, our deal criteria, including also that type of deal, which was like uh, game servers and not part of our, our core focus. Um, we wouldn't actually do a deal like that in the future anyway. But in addition, there was like a lot of stuff in there around like customer churn and determining whether customers are active or not that we couldn't really do with that that we can do with other types of web hosting yeah i mean we learned some really good lessons out of it but you know equally some expensive lessons to learn i guess when you're uh, doing it on your own dime
0: yeah i can imagine they'd be definitely more expensive with your own money i ask because i'm really curious about i, well, I hear a lot of success stories or things going well and i think if something goes wrong do you tend not to hear that at least initially, for a little while, and so I'm always interested by when they've had failures. What have caused those failures, and how how could they have prevented them? And it sounds like this may have been a case of trying to buy a company that wasn't as familiar to you. Were there was there any gut feeling you had at the time where oh uh, maybe this this could work, maybe it couldn't, or what were your feelings at the time?
1: Yeah, so I mean that deal was a deal that we did off of uh, Flipper, and um, basically we'd. Uh, put in a bid, Uh, someone had outbid us, but there was a buy it now price that was about 20 to 30% above where the bidding was at. So, you know, we'd we'd sort of run the numbers. Um, So my partner and I had run the numbers, we looked at it and said, yeah, hey, well, the profitability on this is lower. The payback time is still within parameters based on the, uh, like the sales price. Sure, let's do it and click the button and and bought it. So, I mean, at the time we knew that, you know, the average profit per customer was lower and the margins were lower than uh, what we were typically used to. But the sales price reflected that and we were comfortable like proceeding. Um, And, you know, although it was a different type of thing in that it was game servers versus like standard web hosting Uh, going into it I was like hey how much different could this be like they're still using the same billing software it's just a different like back-end server software that they're running Um, and then it wasn't really till like you know we really got into that business and started operating it that we're like yeah this back-end software is like so different and so much more difficult to use uh, combined with like you know the the loss of revenue from customers that weren't or didn't appear to actually have active services. They just had subscriptions going sort of like the uh, forgotten gym membership sort of uh, thing that a lot of people have.
0: When you're buying companies that are this small, what additional risks are there beyond just what, you know, buying a normal company entails? Like if they're, I'm sure you've seen companies to buy that are, you know, significantly larger. Um, Do you view those larger deals as, safer than the small ones or you know vice versa because they're simpler or how do you think about the size difference
1: yeah i mean to me the the larger the deal gets uh, assuming that you've got active customers in there the the smaller amount that you're potentially going to lose um, in terms of customers that either you know weren't active or you know choose to churn uh, like to so, churn means to, to leave to another provider. Um, if you've got, you know, like 300K of revenue and you lose 3K of revenue, then, you know, that's like 1%. Whereas if you do like a, a 50K deal and you lose 3K of revenue, that's, you know, 7 or something percent. I can't do the math off the top of my head. I know it's greater than five, lower than 10, right? Um, so, the, you know, losing two or 3K of revenue on a larger deal is a lot less painful than on a smaller deal um on some of the really tiny ones we've done of like five to six k you lose a couple clients on that and then you know the payback period becomes stupidly long um and so yeah obviously the bigger the deal you can do the assuming that you've got active customers in there the the better that deal is going to be Uh, hopefully on the longer term basis.
0: Have you run into any people abroad who are investing in companies, but from somewhere like Thailand where it's cheaper to live, but they're buying companies that are in other places, so they can run them more efficiently or?
1: Um, In a lot of ways, that's actually what endurance does with their uh, model. So they'll acquire the companies and then replace in their support. And a lot of the support for endurance is based out of India. Um, so there's there is definitely some of that that goes on although I'm based out here our, our whole team's remote so our marketing guy is based in Brisbane um, we've got a support guy who's also based in Adelaide Australia where I was from previously and another guy who's from South Africa but now lives in Georgia um, so we've got like a fully remote team of Westerners. Our customer support manager is from Brazil, but she travels around a bunch as well. Yeah, I mean, we're not technically basing the the ops and the the company out of here in Asia. It's just where I choose to live. The the biggest downside that I've found actually being out here is the time zone difference. So when I've been trying to do some of these deals with um, Americans, then, you know, depending on where in the States they are, like uh, a lot of America's 12 hours opposite here. Um, it then means either them staying late to do the calls or me getting up super early. Um, so I know like for you right now, I think you said this was like about eight o'clock in the evening for you. And it's about 10 in the morning for me. There's like, that's probably the the most difficult thing with doing that sort of stuff from Asia. I've had like some friends who are in the brokerage space who basically ended up moving to the US in order to be on time zone to do deals a lot easier than it was when they were trying to be based in Asia.
0: Is that something that you think you would ever do? Do you think you would leave Thailand to go to a a time zone that made more sense to you?
1: I mean, for everything else, the time zone's great in terms of my overlap with my marketing guy, overlap with friends and family back in australia um all of that's great it's exclusively when uh when i'm trying to do deals that the time zone overlap becomes difficult um right now you know apart from like the occasional scheduling uh, delay or problem like we've managed to get it done so far um if it became really difficult then potentially i'd maybe go somewhere more on time zone for like One month or a couple months if we're doing a big deal and needed to be on time zone a lot to to get that deal done and then i'd probably return back to asia just because i really enjoyed life out here and the rest of the time zone overlap stuff is much better for me out here than it is in you know somewhere that has better time zone overlap with the us
0: yeah does thailand allow like the location of thailand does it allow you to travel pretty easily throughout asia and even parts of europe if you wanted to go on a a trip or vacation somewhere
1: yeah i mean to get across to europe it's about 10 to 12 hours so you know not quite as good as uh, being on the east coast of the u.s but you know probably a lot better than being west coast u.s Um, and then you know to get back to australia is seven or eight hours um, and pretty much anywhere in asia is a two to three hour flight from here um i think the furthest is maybe japan at like four to five hours um so like last week uh, i had to make a quick trip down to singapore to go see our bank and that was pretty easy i'd like jump on a the flight there in like three hours and simple um whereas yeah like trying to do that from australia would have been a bunch more difficult or you know uh from the states or whatever
0: if you could go and be a professor in college and teach a class on any subject of your choice, what would you teach and why?
1: I want to slightly tweak this question. One of the things that uh, you may or may not know is that I actually have a Bachelor of Education and previously taught uh, high school. So, the, the course that I would like to go back and teach would be a version of like a mix between like business studies and accounting that actually really went into a lot of the, the basics on uh, operating a business that most people just don't even think about. So things like getting your unit economics right, uh, you know, how to build these different operations, going through building standard operating procedures, all of the things that like, really if you know more people should know about if they want to start thinking about running a business that just isn't taught to them unless they're like in a, a business degree at uh, college
0: what, what would you say is the most
1: fortunate event that happened to
0: you that was completely random
1: completely random is a little difficult but um like one day like many years ago i decided to like start looking at Blocks of land um, in the, the Riverland area of South Australia. Um, and then found a block like that night on the, the real estate website, uh, put in an offer the next day and had the offer accepted like within 24, 48 hours. Um, what I didn't know at that time was that in that region, um, it would actually be like a cash flow positive investment, which is. Rather difficult to get on uh, residential real estate in Australia otherwise. So, like residential real estate in the capitals is not cash flow positive, it's uh, negatively geared, and people basically make losses on it to then offset their income from a, a regular job. Um, but then, yeah, through buying that block of land and then having a house built um, and then renting it out for a period and then later selling that, I ended up with like 20, 30 grand um, profit from doing that deal, which has then, you know, helped sort of set me up for coming out here, building my affiliate business, then building this uh, web hosting business on the back end of all that. So, you know, something that seemed like so random at the time to, you know, look at this block and then buy that block of land when like, you know, it was an hour out of the capital. I wasn't going to live there initially. Um, All of those things that then just, magically somehow slot into place to to work was uh yeah probably one of the most fortunate things that happened to me
0: what were you looking to buy land for was it an investment or were you looking to you know live there at some point what was the
1: general purpose so um it was a town that was on the the river um and uh, a friend of mine had just bought a ski boat and so basically this property had a um already had a big shed on it. And so the, the idea was buy this, uh, we can store his boat in the shed and uh, hey, it was like 50, 60 grand Australian to buy the, the block of land. Um, so it just seemed like a, hey, this is cool and interesting to go and buy this block of land. Um, whereas like a similar size block of land in Adelaide, the capital would have been like probably 200, 250,000, uh, dollars to buy and this one was like 60 and it had a shed on it so it seemed interesting to go on to buy this thing um and then later i was like i could build a property on there and have it as like a holiday home and then ended up getting a job in that region lived there for a period then uh rented it out and then sold it um so yeah it just i don't know seemed like a thing to do at the time
0: what would you say is the best business that you've come across before
1: I don't know how business like it is, but the, um, the stuff that I was doing before the web hosting stuff of building these products review affiliate sites, um, is definitely, um, at least some sort of like, uh, cash hustle, if not a, a full business, because like for like one or two grand, uh, at the start to like buy some content and, uh, to build some links, um, you can then generate this uh cash flow asset that's you know can bring in somewhere like two thousand five thousand ten thousand a month um and then those assets can even be uh sold on like online marketplaces so we've sold like three of those sites over the last uh four or five years um you know when they've hit somewhere in that five to ten thousand dollar a month mark um and the multiples on those across the time have gone up from being around like twenty times monthly, so you know, a bit over one point five x to now being a lot closer to three uh, x uh, for a lot of those sites. And yeah, I mean, your your cost to go in is so low, and the profitability is uh, insanely high. That to me, that's like one of the best business models. Combined with the fact that you don't have customer support, you don't ever have to touch a product. Um, yeah, it's like an insanely good business model.
0: Thank you very much, Kevin, for your time. I really appreciate it. Your business is super interesting. I'm looking forward to learning more about it soon.
1: Cool. Thanks for having me on the show. It's uh, been a lot of fun. Thank you for
0: listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. We are a new podcast and leaving us reviews helps us tremendously. Please leave one if you feel so inclined. For show notes and more information, please visit our website at thinklikeowners.com.